HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Not joined, uh, as usual, with Nastasia de Hammer Lopez. In her place, we have the one, the only, Johnny Hunter from Madtown, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, leader of the Underground Everything Collective, like underground, you got your underground meats. What else you got there? Uh, underground Butcher, Four Quarter Restaurant, Underground Catering. Just like all kind of underground. Yeah. All kind of all kind of underground. And of course, we got uh, Dave in the booth. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing good. How about you? Doing well. So uh, this is the uh, holiday meat curing, meat-tacular. So why don't you call in, please, all of your meat-related questions Two seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Did I get that right? I wasn't even listening to myself. So, uh, I wasn't listening to you either. Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Yeah. So Nastasia, I can't say exactly what Nastasia is doing, but uh, like she, like she is cooking for one of her dream. Like her absolute dream client. I said her dreams coming true, and Dave said, "Well, you're still alive, so it can't be all of your dreams come true." Fox and Friends. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh God, man. Gross. Oh, speaking of, like, uh, if you're listening to this uh, later, today is the day of the Roy Moore election in uh, in oh Alabama, <laughs> and this is not a political show, so I guess we shouldn't get into it, but. Like, we're just going to see just what kind of a place we are, huh? Yeah, make pedophilia acceptable again. Oh, gee. Hey, not a political show, guys. That's That wasn't political. That was just humanity. Yeah, or yeah, lack this, thereof. This election goes beyond politics. I mean, that's that's just... Ain't that the truth? It's just crazy. Yeah, one, one of the candidates, like, prosecuted the KKK, and the other one, you know, basically is part of the KKK. Yeah, you know what I mean? And, like, you know, what, I don't, I'm not going to get into it. I'm not, like... <laughs> And, you know, basically, a, you know, a Democrat in Alabama is like a Republican to the rest of us anyway. You know what I mean? To a New Yorker. I mean, you know. Uh, again, not, a, not, not talking politics. Yeah, not politics. Well, well, anyway, yeah we're, we're going to do a special show for that, right? We're trying to. we got to get some guests. If anyone out there, at, like, w- what I need is, like, two people. So, basically, any political person, right, odds are I'm going to disagree with them about something. This is the idea for the show that we somehow can't get off the ground, right, is... Uh, we're going to get some people in and we're going to ostensibly be talking about food, but then we're just going to like, like, you know, like hit them with some barbs about their political <laughs> views and just have them argue back and forth. Cause pretty much like, you know, almost anyone I can, dis- I can disagree with almost, <laughs> almost anybody. John Podesta would be a good one on that one, right? I, I mean, like, uh, you know, the like Hillary campaign manager yeah. who all those, he's like, I had these cooking parties and then they were like thought they were spirits and satanism and you know the guy wait what do you know the guy i mean like i don't I, know John <laughs> i mean like that's the thing like you know i gotta i gotta get some into some i think that would be a good person i mean i don't necessarily yeah i mean it'd be fun anyway so we want to do it but we're trying to find like you know a guest that we can get a hold of i actually was at a christmas party with one of hillary clinton's lawyers 
they, was an interesting guy. But they, I don't, I don't, probably, they might be able to get John Podesta for you. He would be the one because, like, the I don't know if you remember the scandal, but they they were searching his emails after they got hacked, and he said he was going to be cooking a spirit dinner, and uh, and so then this right wing conspiracy theory about how he was like you know into Satanism and all these other things came out. Yeah, oh, you know, nice. but the duck recipe from the emails looked delicious. Yeah, well, do you remember what it was? Not exactly, but I'm sure we can look it up. By the way, we had a couple questions a couple weeks ago on geese. Do you have any advice on cooking geese as opposed to duck? Um, can you cook a goose without without breaking it apart? No. That's so the thing. Like, that's the uh, Jeffrey Steingarten article. Oh, he just wrote it, one? No, like uh, in The Man Who Did Everything, oh, he yeah, has yeah. a whole essay about that. I think it's very, you know, he was like taking, you know, packs of ice and putting it on the breasts as he was cooking it. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I just don't think it can. It, it's always going to be dry. Well, here's the thing, right? So the question is, I mean, I don't know that much about the geese that we raise here in this country, right? I know for like an absolute certainty that if it was within my power, I would shoot and eat, figure out how to cook and shoot and kill every goose on earth. I think they're vile creatures. <laughs> they are terrible. I, I hate them. You know what I mean? Like, which is sad because I love ducks and love to love to cook ducks, but I actually like ducks, the animal. Yeah. They're, they're good animals. Yeah, they're, they're friendly and yeah. they leave you alone, but geese will attack you. Geese will attack the hell out of you with that. Like a duck's just like, mah, mah, mah. and then like a duck, like if you walk up to like a group of ducks, they're like, mah, mah, and they walk away from you. You walk up to a goose and the goose is like, <laughs> Yeah, and like snapping at you, and you don't even have to walk up to it. If you pass by and go out of your way, they will still like be protective and push you. Yeah. Plus, like you feel like you're on the surface of a giant Entenmann's donut. For those of you that you know, I don't know Entenmann's are they only East Coast? No, they have those in the Midwest. All right, so you know the they they have the ones that have like goose turds on them. Yeah. And so like, but like it's like that level of goose turding is what if you grew up in the East, like I'm sure the fly Canada geese have their flyway in the middle of the country too, right? Yeah, yeah, we get. Quite a few Canada geese. Yeah, so there's a major flyway up the coast. And so, like, yeah, we have, like, someone's, like, if you have a field and a <laughs> pond, I mean, forget it. You know what I mean? It's like you live on, like, an Entenmann's donut of goose poop. It's yeah. like... I mean, Madison is basically two lakes surrounding, like, a isthmus. And so we get geese everywhere. So you're saying, it like, you, it originally was one lake, and then the geese pooped in it yeah. so much <laughs> created. that it created... That's the foundation of the city is just goose poop. The isthmus of... Is it technically... An, well, I guess it's not too... It's not a... You can't have an isthmus between lakes, right? What do you call the little spit of land between... They call the, it an isthmus. Really? Yeah. That's a good word because it, 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 it sounds weird. Yeah. And it's, then, isthmus. <laughs> it does sound weird. So my question is, is, uh, so, you know, murder every goose, yes. Uh, but the classic thing, like, in the same way that a lot of Americans would smack you across the face for breaking their turkey apart at Thanksgiving, yeah. like, the Christmas goose was definitely a whole roasted uh, bird. Now. It presents nicely. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess. But, like, I mean, but they must have had a different goose, right? I mean, I would... I'd imagine that the European geese are probably like fattier and more delicious just because there's a foundation of cultural heritage to right. cook with those. It just has to be has to be a different I think it just has to be a different like a different yeah, variety or something. Maybe also there is a you know, a predilection to having dry breast meat and then there's focusing on the leg meat more. Yeah. I uh, mean you can you just gotta get gotta give up one or the other. I mean, because also, like, even though, like, the geese I've cooked are physically a lot longer, I get less meat out of them than I get out of my ducks. Yeah, such a small amount of meat. The breasts, you, tiny. Yeah. Yeah, oh. I, don't know, I don't know. Like, maybe they were just, like, focusing on the skin. and I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I, like, I remember when I was a kid, my grandparents, that was, like, the one of my first culinary things was cooking a whole goose with the neck and... No one knew how to eat it. Wow, <laughs> it's kind of disgusting. Yeah, yeah, because it's greasy. Look, especially if you don't know how to cook. Look, I, I look. We'll get we'll get back into into uh, into geese someday, I'm sure, or I'll figure it out. But it seems like uh, it's a cop out to to break it. You know, to break it down. I mean, I understand why because you're being an enemy of quality if you ruin the whole goose. But there's got to be some way to do it that doesn't involve, like, for instance. Like dipping its legs into into like you know geese goose stock for two hours and then pulling it air drying the whole thing and you know yeah I mean I maybe just cook it really low like one seventy five cook it upside down for like a yeah I don't know <laughs> do you, would you do the pecking duck thing would you do the 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 hot the hot water pour over prick the skin puff it up yeah All I that mean, day you'll have good luck. I mean, then you get crispy skin. That's delicious. Yeah, everyone likes crispy skin. Well, no. I'm sure there's some jerk who doesn't like crispy skin. 
So anyway, so we have a question in from uh, John Darragon. Uh, wanted to call in, but not sure I'll be on my meeting. So here you are. I ordered a whole uh, bone out. So bone out, meaning bone removed. Boneless. So what's the problem? <laughs> what's the, yeah, bo- yeah, bone out. You mean boneless is what you're looking to say here, John. But like, uh, so what could possibly be your problem if you already took the bone out of the, if the, I mean, the entire thing about a cured ham is how much it sucks to take the bone out. I, I just cooked a cured ham this weekend in New York. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why'd you cook it? Uh, so I, we, we, it was a country ham. Right. And so we, we wanted to serve a Christmas ham. Right. And old so, style. like So you old style cooked. Yeah. What temperature did you cook it to? Uh, I, so we didn't have, my friend didn't have a pot that was big enough to hold the pan in. Right. And so we, he had a, we bought a, we bought a trash can yeah. and we sous vide it. Nice. In, in the water. So we cooked it at 165. How was it? It's delicious. Yeah. So um, a couple of things. Like, I haven't cooked a country ham in a long time because, you know, I'm a, I've been for years pushing, like, eating it raw. Yeah. Like, sliced. But the thing about it is, um, did you soak it? Yeah, but it didn't get much salt out of it. Yeah. I don't think that works that well. No, I mean, that, but that's just the way, you know, I grew up. You soak it. Yeah. You know, but then, of course, you're cooking it next to water. You know the old, old school way of cooking a country ham, right? You know, what mm-hmm. they would do is they would get the, um, they would call them lard cans because they're a five gallon lard cans and you'd throw the, the, put the ham into the lard can, bring the, bring the water in the lard can up to the boil, close it, like seal it down and then just let it ride through, let it like average out in temperature. It's basically what we did. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, the, and the good thing about that is that the outside gets a little more, but I think that helps the water penetrate, pull some of the salt out, helps it moisturize a little bit. Yeah. The cold water just did not pull out any salt well i mean think about it like that meat is so dense yeah you know i mean nothing's going to get into the center of that that meat which which hand did you did you cook we made our we made our own oh you cooked your own you went through all the trouble of curing your own (laughs) ham and then you cooked it yeah did you were you punching yourself in the face a little bit as you were doing it or no were you sad we made like 20 all right so did you slice it super thin and put it on eggs or biscuits uh i did not put it on biscuits or eggs but we did slice it very thin yeah that's the other mistake people make. They cut, they they do the big pieces. Yeah, you know what I mean? They cut. It's hard to cook a uh, cut a cooked country ham because it's so friable. It like breaks up into like little shards. I actually think the shards. I actually think it's delicious. Like yeah. I, like I, I do. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> no, but like the thing about it is, is that uh, first of all, the average like modern city style American person doesn't want to deal with that intense level of salt. They really don't understand the main meat course being a seasoning meat and not like a, a, a huge quantity of flesh meat. Yeah. You know, don't you think that's a problem? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think that's what is amazing about cured meats in general is that they last forever and they're intensely seasoned and, you know, lets you eat less protein, you know, from, yeah. I think the, the idea that the ideal is like a 22-inch, you know, steak for every meal. Well, I mean, you got to remember, there were certain periods in our history where, like, you know, we were trying to yeah, eat as much as humanly possible. <laughs> like, think about it. We, 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 in our attempt, in, in like, among other, the, uh, the horrific things that, you know, uh, we, we, meaning white folk, did uh, in the 1800s, wiping out all of the bison. Yeah. I mean, think of how much, like, I mean, I'm sure they let the vast majority of it just rot, but then... You know, they, they just take ate the skins and un- the loins. Yeah, well, it ate yeah, but ate an unconscionable amount of it, just yeah. like a crazy amount. If you read the old accounts of eating buffalo, where they're like, "A man can't eat enough <laughs> buffalo meat. A man never gets his fill of <laughs> buffalo meat." You ever read that? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely read about the history of the that, yeah. and then some of the you know kind of people talking about how they hunted and stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, yeah, it's awful. Yeah, it's it's, it's like a, it's like it just goes to show. How terrible people can be to each other. Uh, anyway, so back to this question. Um, uh, and to animals. People can be terrible to each other and to animals. Because like, that's it. That's one of those stories where uh, we were attempting to be terrible to both people and animals. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah. Yeah, horrible. All, all around terribleness. Just, yeah, wretched. Uh, anyway, so uh, not, not, not that kind of show. Anyway, I ordered a whole bone-out Suriano ham. So as everyone knows, I hope, who listens to this show, uh, Sam Edwards is back online. Uh, and selling the Suriano hams. I have not yet had one. Uh, Dave, you had one over there? Do you want over to Heritage and had one of the new Edwards? I have not yet, no. Oh, you're, so you're, um, which, are you like low quality person? Like, what's the deal? You haven't had one either. Yeah, but like, I don't, I don't work here. I don't <laughs> go over there on a daily basis. I don't either. I never go over there. I'm here. You never go over to the main office? That's not the office anymore. Where have you been? Here. 
We don't we don't share an office with Heritage Foods any longer. Really? Yeah, we're up the street at uh, 100 Bogart. Bogart. Yeah. All right. By the way, speaking of uh, driving around this neighborhood, people in New York who are like renting zip cars, whatever in the hell else you're renting, and you don't know how to drive. At an uncontrolled intersection, pedestrians have the absolute right of way. Absolute right of way. And people in Wisconsin, they know this, right? At an uncontrolled intersection, the pedestrian has the absolute freaking right of way. Yeah, but you know what I hate? I hate when I am a pedestrian, though, and I try to wave a car through because, you know, you're in a car, you're going to get through the intersection a lot faster than me, and then they wave back. Like, no, 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 you go. And I'm like, no, you go, you're in the car. I'm saying it's okay, so go. Most of the time, I just put my kids in front. Ah, cars will slow yeah, down. Yeah, 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 in the stroller. Yeah, yeah. like, remember movie Speed? Speed yeah. yeah, yeah, when a lady, and she's like, yeah, anyway, uh, go watch Speed and look for the baby care scene. It's a good one. Uh, but no, like, I had this person, and like, I'm w- walking across the street, and then they blast through an uncontrolled intersection, laying on the horn, yeah. like, trying to brush me past, like, I'm the jerk. I mean, they don't know that I'm the jerk. I mean, like, I might be the jerk, but they don't know that. Yeah. Absolute right of way, people. Uh, anyway, back to the ham. Uh, I ordered a whole bone-out ham uh, and had some at a party the other day, but have about six pounds left over at this point. I'm going on a trip for the next eight days and want to store it properly. <clears throat> is the best way to store it just to vac-pack it and keep it in the fridge, or is it better to keep it vac-packed at room temperature? I know there are worse problems than having too much leftover ham, but at this point I won't eat it all before I leave on Saturday. I actually don't like to vac-pack... Uh, Unless you're doing it professionally, like, because I've seen backpack stuff get mold on it if it's not backpacked down well, especially in the holes of a boned out ham. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, and there's going to be mold on the outside of it too, and that's going to get like a slimy texture. I mean, yeah, this is not a problem. Just throw it in the fridge. Yeah, just like li- a light, like a, like a light plastic wrappage, if anything, in, in the fridge. And yeah. It's going to be. I mean, you don't uh, want actually. To be the solution is is buy thirty pounds of lard. Melt yeah, yeah. it in the lard vat, dump, dump, dump it in there, let it cool down, put it in the fridge. Well, Morris Burger of Burger's Ham House used to, uh, what their family did was they would keep their hams in the barn hanging from wires because rats and mice couldn't climb wires, but yeah. could climb string. And so they would hang them from wires and they would cut out their, like, their, uh, you know, their frying slices for like eggs and breakfast in the morning and whatnot. And then uh, they would just wipe lard over the cut surface. Yeah, that's, I mean... So they wouldn't coat the whole thing. They would just coat the cut surface. When we have to... So sometimes we have to um, take the water activity of the hams that we're doing. So we'll cut a section out, and then we just put some lard on it, and it continues to cure. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, the only problem with keeping it outside, uh, meaning in your kitchen... The only problem with it is that you might get uh, mites or larder beetles. And if the beetles start boring into the thing, it's freaking... I, I was hanging hams in my, uh, in my apartment for years. Like, I would always have ham hanging in my apartment, like, right next to the pots and pans, like, yeah. from my overhead. And because uh, I always have my pan, you know, my pans like o- overhead, I bolt into the ceiling. I make a, what I, the cheap way, everyone buys these racks, yeah, like yeah. the all clad racks. These garbage. I go to, I go to like a, I go to a, uh, a like a fixture store because they're all over here and I buy the chrome rods that they use for making fixtures for like uh, stores, yep. like, you know, garment racks. And they are, they pre-sell all of the little holders to hold the rods up and then it's bang, bang, anchor into the ceiling and put S-hooks over it. And I bend the S-hooks a little bit so yeah. it can't pop back off. It's a blah, blah, blah. And this is how I've done every hanging pot rack. I've never paid the All-Clad Corporation. I'll pay them for pots, <laughs> but why would I pay them for these goofy, over-designed, freaking pot hanging things? So you, you, you hang hams from there too? Yeah. Well, so were they already finished or? Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes. But like I would always, like I would order them and have them around because I, you know, always want to have ham around. And yeah, he's hanging. But the uh, you know even um, sometimes like you know uh, you know some of the people they they send them in burlaps. But a lot of times I would just have them just you know there naked, and naked. And um, until one day I would always occasionally have mites. Once you get mites in your house, you get mites. But mites don't bother me. I just dust off the you know the yeah. that pile of like fat and mite bodies off of the <laughs> thing underneath the ham. It doesn't bother me much. But like I I got a larder beetle or a, some sort of boring ham beetle in 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 the house once and like that was it they bored into all of the freaking ham 
and I never, I never went back. And even yeah. though I've moved since then <laughs> to a different apartment, I've never gone back to because uh, I'm not. What's the stuff that they used to spray in the cure houses to uh, kill all of those things, and they're not allowed to use anymore? It's like methyl something, something maybe something bromide, something. They used to put, they used to have some sort of. I'm making air quotes, food safe uh, fumigant that yeah. they would fumigate hands with, but I don't think it's allowed anymore. Yeah, I don't know. We and we've never had boring beetles in. Never had a beetle problem. No, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. Do you have mite problems? You have to do you. you we do see mites. Yeah. Do you like what do you do like an we alcohol brush wash? It. Brush them off. Yep, just brush them off. We don't. Some people put like alcohol, like some like small people, not like major producers, but like you know home people like just yeah. Wipe I down think with salt water or or like a little bit of rub, uh, not rubbing alcohol, just like <laughs> some, yeah, yeah, some yeah. kind of alcohol. I mean, you're worried if at our scale or any other scale, you're worried about drying out the skin too much and potentially not getting it even. So I don't. I wouldn't want to put anything that has too much evaporation on it. Right. Do you know who? Uh, do you know who um, Dale DeGroff is? Yeah. You know Leo DeGroff, his son, Mm-mm. also a bar person. Okay. So they're from Rhode Island. You know where Rhode Island is. I do know where Rhode yeah. Island is. So uh, I don't know if you know this. You might, you might. You're not like from around there. You're from Madison, right? I'm from Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they have a, a very uh, probably not like nationally but locally known culture of um, super sod. They call it soupy. You know, in Massachusetts, they call it supersad, or down here, supersad. You would probably call it sopresata, or something like this. But you know what I mean? But, like, they call them soup, soupy. But the, their way that they do it is once they cure it down, they oil pack all of their cured sausage. Really? Yeah. And they store it for years, oil pack. Uh, I mean, that, that makes sense to me. You ever tried that for an aging to see whether it's different? Like, because it just, like, what they're doing is they're basically saying, okay, I'm going to let the enzymatic stuff keep going. But I am cutting off dehydration. Yeah. So they choose their dehydration point that they want, and then uh, that's it. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would be worried about in that situation is rancidity of the oil. So if you can control that. Yeah, well, this thing, they bury it. So oh, like, they bury it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's like they'll, they'll – I think they use a lick – do they use a liquid? I, for, I don't know. But, yeah, they, they have like, these big crocs, and they just pu- push the sausage down, the soup, the, you know, the super yeah. side down into it. And then overfill the entire thing. And then he's like, and I store it under my sink. I want, I'm going to have Leo DeGroff on here one day with his, like, under the sink oil stored supersod and see. It'd be kind of a pain to, uh, to slice that up afterwards. Well, I'm sure he dries yeah. it and everything. I don't, think, I don't know that he puts it back in. I think once you crack one, it's like you eat, the, you eat okay. all the way through it. Okay. Hey, Dave, you want to take a call? Yeah, sure. Caller, you're on the air. Caller. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. All right, cool. Hey, um, so sorry to not have a meat question. But I have a single question, but a meat aside, we live here in Washington, and we're getting some hands from Oregon, and it, they just have an overabundance of hazelnuts. So there's a number of farmers that finish or, like, let all of their pigs go wild on hazelnuts for months before they slaughter. So it might be cool pseudo-Spanish-style local nut hand stuff. Have you purchased so, them? Um, have you purchased this meat? Was, Wait, have you purchased so, this meat yet? Do you have a website or someplace where, for instance, Johnny can purchase some of this meat and like cure some? Have you ever uh, eaten? Have you ever eaten nut yeah, fed uh, nut fed meat uh, uncured? I'll I'll send you a link. I'll find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I will because it's it's pretty exciting stuff. They just have like so many hazelnuts here that the pigs go wild. Uh, I would, I mean, I would eat the hell out of that, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. We get some uh, some nut finished. There's a one of the farms we work with finishes it on acorns and and nuts. Is it that place out of uh, in the south, or is it or is it uh, like in the middle? Where's where's the? Farm it, it's just it? west of us. So yeah, there's a there used to be a place in Tennessee that did mast fed. Uh, Hams all the way through. They did their own, and then they went peaceful pastures. They went out of business. I uh, I one time bought a ham from a Amish farmer that fed all the leftover yogurt to the hams from a dairy plant that was next door. Did it taste good? Smelled like yogurt. I'm sure. <laughs> well, they you know the you know pigs are interesting that way, right? The way that they incorporate things um, into into their into their fat, but um, well, let's get the question first, yeah, then yeah. we'll go back all to right, yeah. yeah. All right, so. This, uh, I called a while back about trying to make nut milk from the spin ball right. and tried running it slow, continuous and to get the solids up, and it did the opposite of what I wanted it to. Yes, it totally so it clarified started, it, right? It 
starts filter. It starts filtering it. Right. So it started really nice and rich in the beginning, but by the end, as I recirculated it, it got thinner and thinner. Oh. And I. So yeah, I was just curious if you have any other thoughts. So uh, the way that I uh, do the nut milks when I do them, and and honestly, like a lot of times for nut milks, nut milk bags they work pretty they work pretty well, right? And so like yeah. um, you know. I haven't done that much on like heavy recirculation with uh, with nut milks. I've done cold brew. I can get really. I've like since I wrote the manual, I, my cold brew game. I don't like cold brew, so it's hard for me to come up with a good recipe. But like my cold brew game is getting much better in the in the spins all. And someday I can give the spec for that, or I can talk about that. But with nut milks, I think you're better off doing a single run. With this caveat, you want. The you want the nut solids to be about the whole spinzol rotor's worth because right, what's right. going to happen is all those solids are going to stay in the rotor and you're going to get out the liquids and the fines and it's uh, blended nuts with water don't form a compact enough puck for you to be able to get like a good. Um, good kind of a separation so usually what i'll do is i'll use like a very i'll use like 400 grams or 450 grams of nuts blend it with the hot water and then take it through once and the first stuff that comes out is kind of liquidy usually in that case and then it goes it goes nice and milky for a while and then i cut it off but i don't think i recirculate i have to go look at my go look at myself i stopped experimenting with it i should start again but i stopped experimenting because i was like would i recommend this necessarily over a nut milk bag yeah. and my answer was if i owned a spinzol but didn't have a nut milk bag i would make nut milk this way <laughs> but if i had a nut milk bag i would probably use the nut milk bag yeah um all right so how about this like yeah. you so i also want to try making the olive oil and i would experiment but i have four-year-old twins and so my time is limited um but like so if i want to get the kalamata olive oil off the top right you know when the spinzol starts spinning everything drops. So would you like do it on ice so it solidifies? No, okay. So first of all, Harold McGee thinks that you and I are enemies of quality because uh, <laughs> cured olive oil is the is the enemy to all lovers of uh, fancy. All olive oil judges would, if they could press a button and wipe us off the face of the planet, they would do it. Um, but the, the way to do it is you blend the olives with um, you blend the olives with uh, Pectinex Ultra SPL, blend blend the hell out of them, and then uh, you spin them, and you're gonna get a you're gonna get a. Do you have a vacuum machine? Uh, not a chamber. Okay, but do you have a jar on on the vacuum machine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a tip, by the way, that I don't know. We've, I've never published it. I don't think, but. Um, Anytime you're going to do like uh, distillation, rotary evaporation, or spinning uh, batch where you're not going to have like the, the refiltering, so you're not going to knock the air out of stuff, a quick, first of all, the Pectinex helps uh, stop foaming if you're going to do distillation. So nowadays, whenever I'm going to do distillation and I'm blending stuff, I always hit my distillation runs with Pectinex Ultra SPL, not because I'm going to clarify it. But because it gets a lot less foam out on the boil, so that's a little tip yeah. for all you Rotovap people out there, if if there are any of you. Uh, but then the the other uh, thing is is that hitting any sort of blended stuff with a vac is going to knock the air out of the floating particles. Because one of the issues is that olives are, as you say, a triple separation. You're going to have solids, liquids, and oil, uh, but you're also going to get floaty doodads. And the floaty doodads are what's going to make it a pain to get your full yield of oil out because the floaty doodads are going to mix with the oil. So if you can soak uh, – if you can, sorry, hit, hit it with a little bit of a vacuum just so that most of the solids drop uh, and aren't floating at the surface, your life's going to sure. be a lot better. Then I would spin it for a long, long time. You're going to pour – both the liquids, meaning the oil and the brine, off of it, and you're just gonna have to let it separate old school. I mean, I think like a well, lot of us should have separate. Funnels. I could do that. Yeah, that that's the way to do it. Right. And then you sit there okay. and tap on it. But any solids that are left in it because they were floating, stick to the sides of your sep funnel and like make it everything make everything a pain in the ass. And use that right. olive oil right away because, as Harold McGee says, it's already it's already bad. It's already been oxidized. Right. It's already he doesn't talk like that. But if I, but <laughs> yeah. anyways, yeah. So 
So, right. good, so good luck with that. So, so back to the pig, back to the pigs. Yeah. Uh, when you eat, like, uh, when you eat it, do you like, do you like eating nut fat or is it just for the hams? I mean, the hams are like what I care about the most. I mean, obviously, like in Spanish style, like the Iberico's, like I love yeah. like all of the cured stuff. But do you really like literally love, love, love just eating the pork that's that way? I think you're losing a lot of the... Yeah, I don't think you get as much flavor. I, I think people... Yeah, like we, we got half a pig that was, that was uh, hazelnut fed before. Right. And... It, it was delicious, but it like just using it as normal pork, it did not taste especially Iberico-y in any way. Yeah, God wants you to cure that. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing yeah. that's important. That's what we're gonna do. Yeah, I think the thing that's important though is you know these ha- these these pigs are on pasture. They're getting to choose what they want to eat, you know, and so I think they're going to be selecting a diet that's going to make more for a better tasting pig. I think some people too, put too much confidence into the the exact diet of the pigs and less into like. You know, diversity of diet and the animals choosing. Right, but the softness from the nut fat, like the like, because it's it's, yeah. and, and I'm not saying this from a health standpoint, because I could give a rat's behind about that. But yeah. it's like the like the the texture of the fat. That's why I think like a, like you could never sell that to like Japanese. Like, imagine like they love like a super hard fat. Yeah, yeah. They like, like want like a super saturated hard pig fat. They would be like, "What is this garbage?" You know what I mean? Oh, I bet they get a decent amount of Iberico hams. <laughs> oh yeah, but that's yeah. But I mean, in other words, like if you were to sell them the fresh pork, yeah, they would be like, "This is a this is a this is the garbage pig." You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it is. I mean, you're. I think you're really right. It does have a real benefit for curing, but nothing for. Right. You know what? I've never had like. Uh, I also think. Do you think Lardo's better off with a firmer fat pig? I mean, I don't know. I mean, most of the pigs we have have a softer fat just because they are eating more protein towards the end of their life cycle. But what size what size hams are you usually uh, starting with when you're curing? Uh, anywhere about twenty twenty five pounds. So, so yeah, good size. Yeah, yeah. We, we got big pigs. And then hey. how long how long you let them go? Yeah, Dave, what do you got? Uh, I was gonna say we gotta take a break real quick. Oh, take a break. Back with more cooking issues. <laughs> Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Whoa, 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 This is garbage. This is garbage. For anyone who's a longtime listener, will will say, where the heck is the Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef song? That's a new ad. They didn't include the song this time. That's unacceptable. Uh, take it up with Brian Kenny. <laughs> that's... that's <laughs> do you have that song somewhere? Can I... Can Actually, I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, really? Yeah. The Hearst Ranch Grass Bed Beef song. Do we have it on the computer somewhere? Can oh, we find it? Know. Yeah, maybe on a backup drive. I'll have to look for it. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm happy that, you know, they're sponsoring the show, but Hearst Ranch You don't seem that beef. happy. Well, <laughs> I mean, look, we have, we have various people that I like for various things. Like, I like it when that guy says, abattoir. <laughs> and I like the Hearst Ranch Grass Fed Beef song. I don't think I'm the only one. Play the hits. Play the hits. I don't think I'm the only one. Oh, speaking of uh, longtime listeners, uh, Joel Gargano opened a restaurant in uh, Chester, Connecticut, that uh, if you guys are in the Connecticut area, go check it out. I haven't been there yet, but I hear great things. Grano Arso, which is, you know, part, you know, cooked grain. 
Uh, open in Chester, just had his one month anniversary, so shout out, and I hope to make it up there soon. I was in Chester, but there was a big snowstorm, so I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't, uh, it wasn't actually a big snowstorm, but my driveway is very long, and so, like, the idea of going out and then driving back, not knowing, is, is like, you know, so I'm a, I'm a bad person. I'm basically, yeah. I'm just a useless, bad, bad human being. Well, hold on one sec, we, we have a call, call, we'll take the caller, and then we'll talk about our, caller, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going? Not going all right. Hey, I had another ham question. I think it was already asked by the first caller, but I couldn't quite make out what the answer was. But I just got a whole bone-in Benton's ham. Right. And my question is storage, because it's like 15 pounds. I'm not going to eat all of it right away, but I could freeze it. I could refrigerate it. But is it safe just to keep it room temperature? Yeah, what do you, um, what are you planning to do? How are you planning to use it? Um, I'm just going to eat it, just slice it off like charcuterie style, like prosciutto or something. Yeah, I mean, I think the only, I mean, I think pest is an issue if you're going to just leave it out at room temperature. I, I mean, Dave's Got idea it. of hanging it or every Spanish bar has, you know, loads right, of right. hanging ham. But, you know, I think in general, refrigeration is probably a little bit easier just as far as containment. And, you know, if there's a wide variation of temperature, you know, you could see some rancidity in the fat. Something Got that people it. don't... I know the, yeah. the, the Benton's, like, the piece of paper that comes with it says to refrigerate it they the have to they, they have to. providers like edward say not to refrigerate it yeah so those hams have been sitting at room temperature more or less for you know nine months so the, going back into the refrigerator is only a step that they're saying because of food safety yeah they don't want to deal with it some some inspector once said something and they don't want to have to deal with it. let me but let me ask you this, more to Johnny's question, how are you going to use it? Because I think one of the issues is, is that let's say you buy an American-style ham. American-style hams are hung differently and have a different shape than uh, European-style ham. So they're, they're uh, typically, and I'm, Benton's is, to my knowledge, is this way, is hung to be plump in the, in the, like in the cushion of the, of the meat. And what that means is the interior of it is softer at a given age than in the equivalent longer stretched out European style ham. And uh, translation is, is that if you try to put it into a holder and do the horizontal long slices that you would do for like a uh, Spanish style ham cutting, that you might run into some issues. Johnny, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean... It's gonna be fine. Yeah, yeah everything's yeah. always fine. It's not gonna kill anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, but you're not. It's, little, it's yeah. be hard to get those. Like, yeah, it's a little wetter. Yeah, a so, little wetter. And slicing wise, but I don't know. We 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 hang it like that traditional, the traditional American style, and you know, you see right at the bone that it's a little softer. But and do you do Spanish style cutting on it? Um, we or, debone it. Yeah, after. and cross cut it. Yeah, and cross cut it. So are are you a fan? Like like. Okay, for many years I was like, I'm an American. I like crosscut ham. Yeah. And then, and then I was like, you know what? I like both. <laughs> I, I like as I've aged, I've become less of a. Because at first I was like, don't let these traditional. Who, who are these people to tell me? You know, so what? Like you know, they've been eating it for hundreds of years, but like each individual person hasn't been alive hundreds of years. What the hell do they know? Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like you know, lots of people do things that are stupid for hundreds and hundreds of years. But I actually now I've come to like the traditional. Like long cut. Yeah, I, it definitely has its benefits. You know, you get. It's, it's, I think it tastes a little bit nuttier, richer, and then you kind of get the like more salt intensity from the crosscut, and then long ways. I don't know. So, caller, what are you gonna do? You're gonna try to bone this out. The only knife I've ever broken in my life, I broke on a ham. Um, I don't know yet. That's a good question. So far, I've just been slicing it with a bone in. I guess lengthwise. Yeah, I mean, if you slice off. Yeah. I mean, I guess like you could slice cross section to the bone for a while and then that would be an easier way to debone it rather than trying to get in there and Yeah, know. we definitely need to get some sort of a boning knife cuz I just have a Misono UX10 and it's really really uh, thin. I don't think that would do the job. Man, the, the Misono, the UX10, that's an old school. That's your old old school high end. I like that. That's the old school like chef's choice there. Um yeah, I mean we, I just use like actually just a butcher little 
carved thin knife to do it, but, and then just like follow the bone and just like make the indentation and come keep coming down. You ever you, you ever purchased one of those old school like like gouges, like boning knives that are four hams that are like look like like wood gouges? Yeah, to test it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do they work? I mean, you basically just push it in and turn, and then you take a core sample out. Is it? Well, they have, but. There's the core sample oh, for testing, but they and then have to take yeah yeah they have like a giant one that's meant for to help remove so, the bone. I've I've never seen one. I've live. never seen one. I've seen a video of one. I mean, it seems like you lose a lot of meat. Probably, but then I guess they sell the bone for soup or, or whatnot. True. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I want the meat for eating. It's so it's so valuable. I want the meat for eating. Yeah. What are you a fan of cutting the cushion off and then and then taking taking care of the face because the face is harder any physically harder anyway. Yep. So. You know, I used to, whenever I was boning, I would try to bone it, and you'd le- I would leave the bone hole in, and I would have it whole. I don't know why. It's just that's what I stupidly, I guess, thought was the thing to do. And then someone was like, well, why don't you just cut off this, like, set of muscles, slice that, and then slice all the parts separately. Are you a fan of that for... I am a fan of that. It's just a lot easier to separate out the, I mean, separate out the, basically, the bottom round from, yeah. like, the sirloin. So. You know what else makes life really easy? Bandsaw. Yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah. So, caller, like, I'm not saying you should go buy a bandsaw, and I'm definitely not saying that you should go into your garage and use your wood bandsaw to cut your uh, your ham. I will tell you this. It works, but I... I, I... Or in a pinch of sawzall. Oh, <laughs> my God, Johnny. You're such a badass. That is an awesome recommendation. You use the, because you can get a fresh blade. Yeah. Now, the thing is, now here's the question. Here's the question for you, right? So, bones aren't very uh, hard, right? And my problem with Sawzall blades is the paint. So, either you got to get one that has, that doesn't have paint. I don't know if they make unpainted yeah. Sawzall blades. Yeah, yeah, I've had them. Really? But if you don't, you can just burn the paint off because you don't need the temper. Yep. Because, I mean, even an untempered steel Sawzall blade is eight jillion times harder than the bone. So you just free in, like, you know, torch off the paint off of your sears. This is the smartest thing I've heard all day. You know what I wanted to do one one time? I wanted to buy a... Uh, so I, I, I've never really experimented with uh, electric knives, like Cuisinart. You ever experiment with electric knives? Uh, used them a couple times, but not experimented. Yeah. So I've always wanted to experiment with the handheld bandsaws. You ever seen these? Like, they make, like, sm- yep. narrow throat. You ever messed with those breaking animals down? No, but, I mean... Just... They have them cordless now. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> so you can walk around with a cordless, like, small throat bandsaw. Yeah. And you can boof, boof, boof. Have you ever experimented with the rotary wheel chicken cutters? No. You ever seen them? No. So if you go to the live poultry joints here, like the the person whose job it is to break down the chickens sits at a bench, and then they're given the plucked chicken after it comes out of the plucker, and there's just this rotary knife, high-spin spinning rotary knife, and they just grab the chicken. If if you could see me, you'd see me holding the ass end of the chicken, and they just go, and just just like, that's it. The chicken just goes away. But there's all sorts of fabric cutting equipment that I thought would be awesome to task for meat. Meat like, cutting. Yeah. Yeah. Like for like large slabs and stuff, like just <laughs> <laughs> But I've never had it. But the Sawzall is my, my new favorite concept of, uh, of use, taking a Sawzall to a ham. Because the hardest part is where the joint is, right? To bone out. And if you could just knock that joint off with a Sawzall, cut the face straight off, and then yep. rip the bone out. Yep. Yeah, definitely take off the head of the bone there. Oh, don't you hate that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, you're a professional. Imagine imagine if you're only doing, like, one or two a year or even worse, like, one or two every ten years. Imagine <laughs> what a pain in, the, pain in the behind that is to get that done. Guys, let me tell you, if you've never done anything we said on this show ever, like, boning, like, like breaking a ham down with a, a Sawzall, that's it. That's, that's the advice right there. Uh, yeah. Hey, we got time for one more call. Oh, caller, you're on the air. And then I have one question I got because it's meat-related. Caller, you're on the air. Yeah, uh, hey, Dave. Uh, this is Jesse Kramer calling from Maker's Kitchen. How are you doing? Doing all right. Um, I'm finally I'm at the Vegetti episodes, uh, so you guys entertain me on my, ra- on my ride every day. Nice. Um, <laughs> Don't go and, shoving uh, things into your Vegetti. It's bad. Go ahead. (laughs) Um, I'm calling in because I do uh, remote cooking classes at Client's House, and um, I've done the Michael Roman hot smoked duck ham um, at home, 
and I use a half hotel uh, perforated. And after you brine the duck uh, breast and then dry them out in the fridge, you cook them in the oven and try to get it to about 160. And I was going to try and redo the recipe so that I could use the circulator, uh, hit the temperature with perfection, and then use a smoking gun. And I wasn't sure if that would hurt the end result or not. Johnny? So um, so one thing that happens when you smoke something is if you smoke with a heat source versus cold smoking, it's a pretty different flavor. And I think that the proteins react with the, you know, the hotel, perforated hotel pan. So you'll get a smoke flavor, but it will be, it will be subtle and it won't have like that, any type of ham kind of flavor. Got it. Yeah. Also like the smoking gun is also like what I like to call like a static smoke. It's like you apply smoke and then you walk away and then the smoke settles down. Yeah. It's not the same. I mean like, so what are your thoughts for like, let's, for someone wants to do experimentation, just getting like uh, a little chief or something like this. Yeah. Or just like, you know, take a tube and like, you know, put an offset fire or just like give yourself enough heat and just do, you know, smoke it like you would over a fire. Are you, just, what do you think about the old double hotel pan trick? It's hard to not get it too hot and have it get kind of acrid, right? Yeah, it's and I think I think that's right. And then the, you know, the chips just burn off in a really awkward way. But I mean, did you know that, it. Did you know that the Internet is a series of tubes? <laughs> it's a series of tubes. Uh, anyway, so, so caller, do you get, you get it, getting a good suggestions here or no? Like, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was just trying to make it a little cleaner and, and more travel friendly and I don't have to babysit it, but, um, most of this, I, yeah. I feel like I, it's going to compromise, uh, the flavor. M- uh, most of the smoking gun so. stuff is more like putting smoke into things so you can see it. Like for an actual, like smoking yeah. something is like. Live smoke is very different from I don't know I, I call it static smoke but I don't know like what you would yeah. I don't know I mean I would say just do like an offset Weber you know you're gonna get yeah you know and that's gonna I mean do you think do you think that there's a way I mean I don't know if the circulator is the appropriate tool to get the internal temperature to what I want but do you think that there's a way to uh, use the circulator just to cook it to my exact temperature and then somehow um, maybe put it in the oven with that perforated pan at a lower temperature, but hot enough um, that the smoke might still penetrate. I mean, yeah, the circulators, I mean, I don't know, Johnny, you have your own, I mean, like you wouldn't, I wouldn't want want to do like a lot of it that way maybe, but, but for insurance purposes, circulator is always good for ensuring that you hit your internals. And then all you're worried about is the smoke flavor. You're not worried about cooking it anymore. So yeah, I think it's going to be great. Um, It's just going to be different. Okay. The other problem, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard anyway, so you're not worried about the texture is not going to be a problem. And part of the problem with cooking a duck too long is the texture, but that's on on meat rare rare, not yeah. on a not on a hard cook. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, all right. Then I'll stick to the, uh, the the tried and true method then. All right, cool. Hey, Dave, can I do one more quick thing? No, there's a show coming in. Uh, Sorry, dude. All right, so listen. I'm going to I'm going to answer. Matt Hall had like he legitimately wrote in a question on sausage, and I'm going to get maybe I'll record Johnny's answer, and we'll just play it next time off my phone. Yeah, all right. And, I mean, feel free to contact me on any meat questions. So I think Dave retweeted or tweeted out about uh, my Twitter handle. So Johnny D Hunter. All right, Matt Hall. I'm going to get this answered on my phone, and then we will somehow broadcast it next time. Next time, cooking issues. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.
So uh, this is the extended version of the program because uh, I ran out of time and we didn't actually get to the only writing question for Johnny. So here it is. Uh, hi, everyone. I have two questions related to sausage making. This is from Matt Hall. Uh, I recently made a batch of roasted garlic sausage using a mix of pork tenderloin. It's all I had at the time, so no judgment, <laughs> no judgment, uh, and back fat. The nominal fat concentration should have been in the range of 25 to 30% uh, uh, percent by weight. I salted the mix about one day in advance of grinding. Uh, I froze my grinding equipment, the standard KitchenAid accessory, and kept the mix refrigerated until it was time to grind. The resulting sausage had a slightly mealy texture. Could you comment on what might have gone wrong? I'm wondering if I underestimate the fat content of the tenderloin and or should have had slightly frozen the mix in advance of grinding. And two, thinking about the issues of the first question led me to consider historical sausage making. Everyone seems to stress keeping your equipment mix and mix cold. What did people do prior to modern cooling technology to achieve sausages with acceptable texture? Thanks for your advice, Matt. Uh, okay. I would I would assume on the mealiness that the um, the tenderloin is going to be a problem there because it's too lean and it's gonna it's not gonna emulsify well with the with the fat and um, and so as it cuts through the other thing is is that no one ever has really good success with those KitchenAid yeah they're just like inherently there's something about the uh, there's something about the throat on them yeah. that is just like they they clog, they smear. Yeah, I mean it's just the the equipment. Nothing is like tight and compact, and it's all plastic and stuff. But they do make there is a third party add on for a stainless steel all pieces, and that is great. I think that works as a really good sausage maker. So for real. Yep. And is it just like a like a bigger like a bigger like what do you think about the old Czechoslovakian guy the hand crank like table mounted Czechoslovakian cast guy? Yeah, I mean those again. I feel like the equipment like the the blades and the and the plates they don't like fit up really close to each other and you got to keep those things really sharp and such. But I mean they can work, but it's still I see a lot of smearing when we use one. So what do you think about historical sausage making? Is it just because they were hand cutting everything? Yeah, I was gonna say hand cutting. Um, he did mention something else about freezing the meat or slightly freezing it and that will cause it to be mealy too really so, yeah because everyone recommends par freezing for kitchen aids or even par freezing for everyone freezes their their knives and everything their yeah stuff that that's, that's important but the the issue with freezing the meat is that it's a you know you're dehydrating you're pulling moisture out of the protein and so going back into the grind it's going to be problematic what about the um post grind like doing the bind you think that's also an issue like uh, do you bind I me mean, like we're going to cure something obviously that you need the bind but like on a fresh sausage do you worry about the bind too much are you sitting there doing a lot of manipulation afterwards with your hands uh, normally it's, it depends on like what the coarseness that you want is but the easiest way to do it is just do two grinds so uh, this is leading into and I hope the levels are okay guys because we're you know I have no idea how to use this equipment <laughs> But this leads me into uh, my favorite Johnny Hunter topic, which is what have you put through your meat grinder? Yeah, Because yeah. you, you put everything through your meat grinder. A meat grinder is a great piece of equipment that is can be utilized for all types of processing. And it is an industrial processing. They use auger systems with blades for all kinds of vegetable and cheese and things so like that. So give me some interesting ones that you might, people might not. You've done masa in it, right? Yeah, so we make masa in it, and you get a really nice masa. How um, many passes? Uh, twice. Yeah. Fine plate? Fine plate, yep. With blades? With blades, yeah. yeah. Always with blades? Do you ever do anything without the blades? Uh, n I've never... I've never been able to get it to really work without the blades. What about, like, like what's it like? What about what happens when you try to put mashed potatoes through? Is it a nightmare? <laughs> I've not put... I would imagine that it would get a gummy... Get texture. gummy? Yeah, yeah, it would be. Like, what else? Like, that's a lot of... So, I make hot sauce. Oh. So, like, we put all the peppers through. And it's kind of nice because it filters out some of the seeds... And, uh, I mean, we have, like, a grinder that does 110 pounds a minute. And so we, we ground we ground 600 pounds of peppers this year through that grinder. And, and it's like, just, like, and fine plate, one grind. Fine plate, one grind, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't get a second plate. You couldn't get a second grind through it because it becomes liquid. Well, almost. how does it filter the seeds? Where do the seeds stay? The seeds stay in the auger. So you have to, like, remove it all every couple passes. Can you use it, like, like a... Like a tomato strainer for doing sauce? Yeah, so I do process tomatoes through a meat grinder as well. 
Does it hold back the skins? Because that's what sucks in the tomato sauce is the skins. Will it hold any of the skins back? It does not. But my favorite way to do tomatoes to get the skins off is to freeze them. And then what? And then you just drop them into warm water and the skin comes right off. You like that better than the old school score and score and boil? Yeah, that's. I think that's a lot more labor intensive. Yeah, I've never tried it. I'll try but it. That, that's a good tip. That is the way my grandmother made all of her tomato salads was she would score it, boil it, and then take the skin off and serve. Yeah, I have to say that, uh, like, uh, texturally I understand why to remove the skins, but it was only after I started building the spinzol that I realized how bitter tomato skin is. Yeah. Because I started eating concentrated <laughs> tomato skins because I would buy, like, you know... I'd buy grape tomatoes because that's what they had that tasted okay to make tomato water, and the tomato yeah. water is fine. But God, because remember, the, like a grape tomato has so much more so skin. skin yeah. You know what I mean? Area. And, and so, like, I would eat the the concentrated skins. I was like, "This is terrible. This <laughs> tastes terrible." You know what I mean? So it was like a, a big shock to me that tomato skins are that bitter. And so now I'm like, "Yeah, you should take those things off." You know what I mean? Or use the old school like yeah, uh, hand mills and stuff yeah we ever I've never actually I own one but I've never made tomato sauce that way you know the big conical passers and, yeah and, and, I mean it's a meat grinder basically it's just an auger slash it's a mechanical chicken deboner you know what you should do is you should we should build you a uh, like a cone to go over your meat grinder yeah. so that it just holds the skins back in the cone I could totally build it because the, the back pressure from the stuff coming out of the auger yep. will stop it from going through but like I mean, if you send me the diameter, we, okay. I'm sure I could run a test. I'm not sure whether it's food grade or not, but yeah. I could run a we test. We could run a test? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if people had more uses for meat grinders, then they wouldn't have to use the shitty KitchenAid ones. What about if you do, if you try to do alternative masses, like rise really hard because it's gummy, really, mm-hmm. really gummy? Would it, will it get gummed up, or is it okay in yours? I mean, it's a little... So we got a Nexomatic, and, um, and I, we, I did the rye one with you here um and i've done rye through the meat grinder it's a little bit better because it's not quite it's not the plates aren't as close and it's a sharper blade so you do get a nice you get a nice uh, dough that comes out of it and it's a little bit less of a pain in the ass to clean because you're not clean you're cleaning stainless steel not a rock right what about uh nut butters versus a champion um well so the nut butters you need a little bit finer of a of a die so you get a pretty you get a pretty loose grind even with a couple of passes you could do it twice yeah for sure so one of the issues I have when you're you know how like when you grind nuts if you add sugar to the mix before you grind yep. it seizes everything yep. can a meat grinder handle that yes it won't seize yeah it's a it's a better it's a better pass through than you know a you know than a KitchenAid or a because right, that's a surefire way to destroy your <laughs> Vitamix. Yeah, your, your, like sugar and nuts is sure what. I mean, like, look, in a food processor, everyone puts the sugar with the nuts just to stop it from oiling up, but they're not getting it to the point where it's it's going to, like, gum up. They're not yeah, actually yeah. releasing the, the oil. But, like, if you put it through a serious grinder, like, yeah. I don't, uh, I think I told you, I almost burnt out my next to Mac. Smoke came out of the back of the unit <laughs> because I sugared my mix when I was grinding nuts. Stupid, uh, but, you know. I like to push stuff to the yeah. limit, limit of well. So what else? What else in the uh, in the uh, meat grinder? In the meat grinder, uh, I made verjus. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. And it held the skins in the auger or no? Yeah, and uh, I mean I filtered too, but you know we were able to keep most of the skins and the seeds out. Um, that, I was pretty happy with that. Did it crack the seeds? So in other words, like if you're using like uh, one of my problems when I'm working with let's say uh, Concord grapes or something like this is I always worry about crushing the seeds too much because the bitterness. the bitterness and tannins and stuff. Yeah. So do you if you use a if you're using a coarser plate with grapes to get the initial crush, yeah. are you do you then find that you aren't rupturing that you're not getting as much tannin out? You do get some tannin out, but I mean at some point it does the the seeds kind of create a barrier on the outside of the auger and then just the juices is coming in, so Right, because it, it can't be nearly as tannic as blending in a Vitaprep. Oh, yeah, definitely way less. <laughs> yeah, because, like, you know what, like, typically I hate working with them because what I'll do is I'll throw the enzyme in. Yeah. And then I'll just hand, I'll, like, <laughs> smash it with my hands, like, sit there, like, just, like, you know, smash the hell out of it with my hands. Yeah. And it's, like, irritating if you yeah. have to do a lot of it. Yeah, that's what's nice about a meat grinder is that, you know, 
with a lot of equipment, you put something in, you blend, and then you have to pour it out. But a meat grinder, you're just, it's, you know, pastor, you're in, you know, continually do it. So, um, so what about cheese? You said cheese. What happens to cheese in a meat grinder? Yeah, like, you know, if I have to, like, shred a bunch of cheese, and, you know, so, uh, you know, instead of, like, using a vitamin, or a Roboku, I'll just, like, throw it through the Vitamix and... So if you used a coarse plate, do you think you could, like, one pass make Rotel? No. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing the tomatoes to hatch. Yeah. A... <laughs> um, Does anyone not like Rotel? Rotel's delicious. It's amazing. I love Rotel. I love queso. <laughs> yeah, queso is delicious, too. Yeah. Uh, we should talk about Oscar Mayer. Oh, yeah. So uh, and the other last thing you were telling me is that right near you in Madison, tell me what happened. So we have an Oscar Mayer plant owned by Kraft. They closed it um, this year, and uh, I've been waiting for the auction because <laughs> you know there's just equipment, and I knew and I I knew people who worked at Oscar Mayer. I had been in the plant before. Um, I'd never been in the plant. I'd been in the offices. So did you walk through and tag what you want? I want this. Yeah. Well, there was fourteen hundred pieces, no, twenty one hundred pieces in the auction, and uh, it was a three day auction. And, you know... Live? Live auction. Uh, there was online, too, but mostly live. And so, like, I have been to a lot of auctions. Like, almost all the equipment that I own, I've purchased at restaurant... restaurant Grocery store... I like I prefer grocery store auctions. Why, because the restaurant dealers aren't there? Uh, they're, they're there, but you get the meat processing department there, and you have your baking. Right, you know, right, like, right. at a restaurant equipment, you maybe get, like, an oven or a fryer. Right, right, in right, right. A, at, a, at, a, at a grocery store, you got, like, 14 ovens that go yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I didn't know what to expect. They put the catalog on. We, like, kind of searched through it. You know, some of these meat grinders are, like, the size of, you know, a room. And, like, they can handle something like 10,000 pounds an hour, which is not our size. <laughs> <laughs> they feed employees. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, so we spent three days there. But one thing that I thought was really cool um, is that they, you know, Oscar Mayer have been doing sous vide for, you know, 40 years. Because they, yeah, because like they're industrial, they'll they're do whatever just, is best. Yeah, right? and they're so they have these vats that were the size of a dumpster, and they had all this mechanical um, pumps to circulate the water, and then they had these like heating elements running along the bottom in order to like give an indirect heat to the water, and so you had basically, you know, sous vide was developed for industrial food way before it ever hit like you know the restaurants or chefs or stuff so it's pretty funny to see the size of the room that was what, basically what that go for? Um, they didn't auction that piece off but there was some interesting pieces were you like 50 bucks? yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but then you have to pull it out <laughs> but I did get um, I got a bunch of carts and you know these $2,000 carts you know 100 bucks each really? Yeah. you're familiar with the, the old old story about the uh, armor factory and the meat carts right? mm-hmm yeah, yeah. I had thousands of carts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, what, like, how many did you get? How much did they cost? So they cost me 100 bucks each. Right. I got 40 40 Yeah. So that's, that's still, like, a good bit of money. Yeah. But, I mean, it would have cost me $80,000. If you were going to go... Bur- were, you, were you in the market for 100 yeah, carts? Yeah, these are, these are exactly the carts that I needed to buy. You should have just bought them and then sold them to other people. Going yeah. to, like, underground cart collective and I, just, like, sold carts to people. I have been known to flip equipment from an auction. Well, why not? Yeah. Like, the fact of the matter is, is that, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have this the skill or the desire to, like, go cherry-pick the good stuff out of an auction. I used to do it back yeah. when I was allowed to buy equipment. <laughs> and... Uh, there's an art to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. knowing which auctions to go to. You always size up your crew too because you have your restaurant dealers and you get your scrap guys yeah. <laughs> and you and then you have like a couple people who are just like there to check it out. You know, there was like a bakery and you know, a couple other, my mushroom farmer was there, <laughs> a couple farmers. And so yeah, you always see the scrap guys and they go over to the piece of the equipment. They kind of like lift it up just a little bit. And then they stop bidding at an exact price, and they will not go above that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then your restaurant dealers sometimes they're there just to mess with you. you know? Well, the restaurant guys, like Mike's in New York restaurant, New York City restaurant auctions. It's like it's always the same group of folks, and it's like if they thought they could sell it again, you can't, you can't, you can't beat them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to beat them. You yeah. know what I mean? Like whereas. If you get something that they don't want, 
then you can get it for free. We don't really get a lot of scrap guys here because I yes. guess no one has a scrap truck. So it's it's more like, uh, you know, like the first fryer I ever bought wasn't a stainless kettle fryer. It was a, it was a plain steel kettle fryer. And literally nobody wanted it. Cause yeah. Like they, they, there was no resell on it. Like you only resell a stainless fryer. Yeah. And so I was like, yeah, like 25, 50 bucks, something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, and that's how like I got everything. Like uh, it was just a little too crappy for the restaurant folks. You know, it was a little because it's standard restaurant uh, restaurant procedure here is you buy the used equipment, you keep it out on the street, and you like power wash it down on the street. <laughs> you take everything that looks crappy and you paint it with spray paint to yeah. make it look like metal, and then you wheel it and sell it. Yeah. So like that's like you see them on the street constantly like washing the grime off of it and then spray painting it you know I find with auctions that you can get your best deals if you just wait the longest you know just stay the last right the last like hour because they're so long those auctions are so long but you know the thing is, is like you have to have a truck because here in New York it's like always like you have to take it out today it's like yeah. you buy it today in cash today and you leave with it today yeah you have to have capabilities one of my favorite experiences I've started going to uh, vegetable auctions Ooh, so there's I've never bought food at an auction. Yeah, so there's an Amish vegetable auction in Wisconsin that I go to, and, uh, you know, it's hilarious. I mean, the produce is really nice. It's all locally grown. But then it's just, like, a bunch of people having really different needs bidding on, you know, thousands of pounds of squash. And then you're like, if they don't need the squash, you're like, I have a meat grinder. I'll yeah, take yeah. it. <laughs> Alrighty. Awesome. Well, uh, Johnny, thanks. This has been the supplementary yeah. cooking issues. <laughs>